And John speaks of that in more detail in Revelation 21 and 22, the new heaven and the new earth, where the sin-ruined creation is now restored. Now, what does that mean, the new heaven and the new earth? There are two ways that you can understand this and that Christians have understood it. Some people think that all that's material right now is just wiped. It's gone. Everything is nuked, blown up, disappeared, whatever, however you want to put it. It's um, the reverse Big Bang, or it's the Big Bang that destroys everything. And then they think that heaven and earth are something very, very different. In fact, many, many people would regard heaven as somewhat ethereal. It's kind of spiritual. This is, you know, you, you touch the, the pew in front of you, you touch your head, it's material, it's solid. But all this is going to be destroyed and we're all going to be spiritual beings. The problem with that understanding is this. That it would appear to contradict other parts of scripture. And that creates a difficulty because you interpret scripture with scripture. Also this. There are two words in the New Testament for new. One means brand new. Completely new. The other means rejuvenated. It means renewed. So, um, let take it in, in human terms. Uh, you could say, I have a new car. It's brand new. You've just bought it out of a shop. It's just been made. You've just bought it out of a garage. Or, your car can have a total makeover. And you can say, I've got a renewed car. It's got a renewed engine in it. And it's, just, it's, it's, it's the same car, but it's been renewed. We have in the congregation a new member of the congregation in Finlay Nixon. He's totally new. But sometimes we talk about people being renewed, reinvigorated. Well, it's this second understanding of the word new that is used here. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In Ephesians 1 and verse 10, Paul talks about um, the message of Christ being put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. There's a fulfillment. All things in heaven and earth are to be brought together under Christ. Go to Romans 8 and you'll see another explanation of this. Romans 8 verse 18. Very important. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Now what is being taught here? Again, it's important and it's very clear. It's saying that the creation, including our physical bodies, are in bondage to decay. You can't stop it. You can't reverse it. It's not going to change. At least before this day of the Lord. Because what we're being told here is the whole creation groans and looks forward to being renewed. And even Christians who know that we are Christians, who know that we are going to be with Jesus Christ... 
there is something that we don't yet have, that we will have, and that will be renewed bodies. I think that um, clearly demonstrates that what's been spoken of in Revelation 21 is that somehow, yes, there is going to be this huge change in the physics, in the biology, this huge change in the structure of the universe. But it's not going to be completely new. It's not going to be completely strange. I mean, this may seem a very strange way of putting it, but our good friends, Case and Mika Rinks in the Netherlands, I remember having a conversation with them once, just trying to understand some of these things and saying, uh, saying to him, Case, you know, I'd love, there's cities I'd love to visit, like Barcelona and St. Petersburg and Beijing, and I don't think I'll ever visit them all before I die, and, uh, you know, I'd hate to go to heaven without having seen some of these things. And his response to that was, that will all be in heaven and so much more. It seemed to me quite, in one sense, it seemed quite a worldly response. But in another sense, I think it is absolutely correct that there is somehow a renewal of all things. It's going to be changed. It's going to be renewed. When you look at the astonishing beauty of the creation, and then you realize that even the, the creation that we have it as the moment, at the moment is perverted and is polluted by sin and its groaning, it's going to be renewed. The sunsets over the River Tay or uh, w- whatever it is that you see that, you just, that is the wow factor, then that's what the new heaven and the new earth is going to be like. And you really do have to get out of your head this image of heaven as being some kind of ethereal, spiritual place where you just kind of float around. Or worse still, the nightmarish one of sitting on a cloud playing a harp which is an image that is deeply burned into lots of people's head. What is heaven going to be like? Some people say it's going to be like nothing on earth. In actual fact, it's going to be like everything on earth, except much, much better. What about then, for example, things like there was no longer any sea, verse 1. What does that mean? Well, again, I've been arguing as we look through the whole of this book, you do not take this as absolutely literal. John was on the island of Patmos. He was surrounded by sea. He couldn't escape. Sea in the Bible is often used as an image for evil, unrest, for conflict, and for grace. And it's all changed. There's going to be no sea. There's going to be no separation. Again, if you're away from home, you feel separate. You can be separated from people. But in heaven, there is no separation Nothing that keeps us from fellowship with one another. Nothing that keeps us from fellowship with God. You see, look at all this this list of negatives. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Go back into Revelation chapter 7. You see a similar description. Revelation 7 and verse 16, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's a whole new reality here with all the negatives having gone. Remember how 
this morning I, I spoke about how an attitude of negative speaking into things does so much harm. It's like a cancer. It eats away. God speaks his word. And his word is not yes and no. His word is yes in Christ Jesus. The devil speaks his word and his word is lies. In heaven, there are no negatives. It's done with. It's finished. The pain is gone. The sorrow is gone. The crying is gone. The old order of things has passed away. Now, that again sounds wonderful for people, but they still, we still often have this image of heaven as again being just vague and ethereal. Let me try and deal with this in terms of the problem of matter and spirit. Because right in the beginning in the early church, and right now as well, there are still Christians who think that matter, what you touch physically, what you can have with your senses, what you can smell, what you can see, and so on, that matter doesn't really matter. But you see, heaven and earth is not a description of, in the, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and like the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that there's some of you are going to be on earth, and then the rest, 144,000 on earth, or, and the rest in heaven, or... I can't remember which way round it is. Maybe it's the other way round. The new heavens and the new earth is just a description of saying, earth describes what is earthly, matter. And heaven, in a sense, is for spiritual. Do, do you, I mean, would you believe, would you seriously believe that heaven is up there somewhere? If you just keep going far enough in a spacecraft, you're going to get to it? Does the Bible teach that? It doesn't teach that. You know, it's very difficult if you believe in in. Uh, you know, a heaven up there, an earth here, and a hell below. Well, hell is in the middle of the earth. The core of the earth is, is hell. That's, that's not what the Bible teaches. Not like that. It's that whole question of, of matter and spirit. There's an unseen reality as well. But the thing is, the unseen is only grasped by the seen. You can either reduce everything to matter... And become a materialist and eliminate the spirit and and announce there's no God and so on. And that's just wrong. Or we can reduce everything to spirit and say that matter does not matter. Just say, I remember one man saying to me, environmentalism doesn't matter because the whole earth's going to burn anyway. No, it does matter. Your body does matter, and the, the physical things do matter, and you don't make this big, huge division that there is. You, the, the things go together. The material and the spiritual go together. And here's describing a new materiality, a new spirituality. In fact, what's being said here is, look, there's a whole lot more that is to come. Some people try and interpret heaven in terms of earth. But I think what John is telling us to do is to interpret earth in terms of heaven. Robert Browning, the poet, said this, Earth's crammed with heaven. As we'll see, that there's, we can experience and have a foretaste of heaven, even on this earth. So what we're being told here is that heaven, or home, our heavenly home, is more. There's no negatives. It's not the opposite of the earth, but it's the completion of everything. It's not the illusion but it's the reality, and it's something that we can have, even have a foretaste of just now.
Now that's what was promised if you went and read the last few chapters of the book of Isaiah. You would find several times the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. And that is what is being understood. A renewed earth. Just a complete change in how things are set up. I want to ask you just a couple of other questions about heaven that come out of this, at least for me. One is, shouldn't heaven be a garden? I mean, the Bible starts in a garden, and paradise is Eden, and it's a garden, and surely we should end up with heaven in a garden. Last night, um, we watched a wee bit about the music movement in the west coast, San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles, the west coast, obviously, of the United States. And it was all about the Eagles and James Taylor and Joni Mitchell and so on. And in the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s, that whole hippie movement. And this whole idea of in this urban environment like Los Angeles with Sunset Boulevard and the, the freeways and so on, people were smoking dope and they were saying, let's go back to the garden. This is the idea of paradise, is to go back to nature, back to the garden. And yet, the Bible talks about going from the garden and going back into this heavenly city. It describes heaven in terms of a city, as uh, we'll have a look at that uh, in, a, in a month's time in our next communion service. That doesn't make sense to a lot of us. Cities are noisy. Cities are forgetful of God. Do you sit in Perth Road or... Do you sit outside the city center in the cared hall? Do you go into the middle of London, Trafalgar Square, and do you meditate and see the glory of God? Or is it not the case that really you're supposed to go to some remote island and sit on the island and be in tune with Mother Nature and get closer to God? Is that not how people perceive it? And yet here, cities are defined of God. In fact, you see that in the book of Revelation because the personification of evil in the city of Babylon is obviously a city. But this is Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. How can that be a model? If you look at the history of Jerusalem in between these, the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible, it's a city where there are murders, it's a city where there is idolatry, it's a city where there is war, where there is strife, it's a city over which Jesus wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you like a mother gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't. You would not come. And yet in chapter 20 and verse 9, you go back to that, They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Hebrews 11.10 says that Abraham was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And if your image of heaven is one of almost like a weekend away in the country, it's, 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 it's climbing a mountain and being closer to God, but you can't, you know, how, how do you get heaven in the city? And it's a difficult image for us to get. Well, let me suggest it this way. Heaven is intimate fellowship with God. And that's why it's described like a city. Heaven is not a weekend away in the country. Heaven is not an eternal camping trip, which for some people would be um, the opposite anyway. Peterson puts it this way. Heaven is a holy city living in harmony with God. Heaven is a virgin bride alive in intimacy with God. And the city and the bride are us. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
The loud voice from the throne is an angel. It's not God. The loud voice from the throne. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. You see, if you follow the theme through in the Bible, in the garden, God walked with Adam and Eve. He had fellowship with Adam and Eve. When mankind fell, when sin came, there was still this promise of having fellowship with God, of, of knowing God personally and really. So you found that when the Israelites wandered in the desert, in the tabernacle, with the pillar of smoke, the, the, the cloud of smoke, the, and the fire, the pillar of fire. And then you find it in the temple, where to go into the Holy of Holies, there was in Hebrew, they described it as the Shekinah, the glory of God. And then you find it in the New Testament with Jesus being present and he said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I will be there in the midst that God is present in his church, in his people. And then God is ultimately, and that's what this is describing, we look forward to God ultimately being uh, with us and us with him without any sin or anything to spoil it. It's a wonderful picture of, of intimacy with God. And the city is used as the image, if you like, because the city is where you meet people. The city is where you share things together. And there's this wonderful city, this beautiful city, that describes the fellowship that we have with God. The city is vibrant. The city is exciting. The city is stimulating. The city is full of activity. And all that is used in this imagery. God says in Isaiah 46, verse 10, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all I please. And God's pleasure is to create for himself a city, a people, where he will dwell amongst his people forever. I am the Alpha and the Omega, he says in verse 6, the beginning and the end. Of course, that's again taken from chapter 1 and verse 18, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the everlasting God. How do we know? See, nothing in this building, nothing here is from everlasting to everlasting. Nothing that we have. Only God is from everlasting to everlasting. And that God could say, I don't need you. I don't want you. And that would be it. We're done. But instead, the whole of human history is done so that God will save for himself a people. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. How do we know that, by the way? Go back to verse 5. He seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Write it down. This, what John saw almost 2,000 years ago, is what is written down here. If John hadn't written it down, we wouldn't know about it right now. God addresses the church now. God is saying, I am making everything new. God's word is trustworthy and true. 
and we can stake and we should stake our lives on it. So we're being told that we're going home. We're being told by God who is reliable, God who is from everlasting to everlasting, that he has created a home for us, that he wants to be with us. And in a sense, you'd like to stop there. But look at verses 7 and 8. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There's a challenge. And it's a real challenge. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and you'll see a parallel. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's exactly the same. Well, not exactly the same, but very similar to the list that's in, in Revelation 21. But then verse 11 says this, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is always that choice. We choose which city we belong to, the city of God or the city of Babylon. We choose whom we have fellowship with. You belong, said Jesus, to your father the devil, he said to the Pharisees. And when we look at our city and when we look at our communities and our towns and our villages, we know that there are many, many people who just completely and totally and utterly reject what God says and want nothing to do with Jesus. And they could be written off except for the fact that we could have been written off as well. In fact, some of us probably sitting here probably feel that we are written off. But... That's what the gospel is. This is not God saying, well, on the one hand, there's this group of people and they're being really good and they're going to be with me. And on the other hand, there's this group of people and they're being really rotten and they're going to burn forever. What's being said is that we're lost. But God wants intimate fellowship with us. And he provided a means. And that's how we have the, in early in Revelation, the lamb who was slain in the midst of the throne and so on. And that's why the gospel is so great. And that's why this morning I, I was so strong in terms of how we communicate the gospel. Because I'm still convinced that there are far too many Christians who perceive the gospel as a way to fill in the gaps in their church if it's beginning to decline. But they don't really think of the gospel as being what needs to go to everybody. Because they're quite happy with their wee group in the church. They don't want it to become too big. I have never in my life heard anything more selfish or ridiculous than a Christian saying, I don't want my church to become too big. What are you talking about? It's not your church. And there are tens of thousands of people around you who are perishing and going to hell. How can you possibly say, I don't want it to become too big? Oh, because the fellowship or the... Look... What fellowship are you talking about? It's fellowship with Jesus. We're not talking about having massive churches and, and, and so on for our own benefit and our own good. I want the church to be absolute. I want us to have all kinds of problems with numbers because I want people to be seeking Jesus Christ. 
because otherwise they are lost. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But we don't believe in the city of God so often. We, we believe in the hamlet of God, the village of God, the tiny wee group where God is going to come and be nice with all of us. We don't see the vision of a number that no one could count, a multitude that no one could count, bowing down and worshipping. Because what's being said here in verse 8, that's us, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, and so on. That's our neighbors. That's the people in the street around us. And there is no mistake. There is no question. If you are here and you are not a Christian, there is only one place you are going. And you don't want to go to that home. You really do not want to go there. And that's why the gospel has to be communicated. And the gospel has to be told. See, I think there's a challenge in here for the Christian as well. Because you'll see in verse 7, he says, he overcomes. And what's really, that's referring, I think, back earlier in the book, where Christians were saying, how long, O Lord, how long? And there was talk about how people were turning away from God and Christians were giving up. I was asked a really interesting question this morning about, can a Christian fall away so as to be lost? Um, if you want the answer, you'll have to ask it another time because we don't have time to go into it just now. Brief answer is no, but there's a longer answer uh, as well. But here there is a warning. There's an implicit warning here for John because, uh, from John because it says the cowardly. It's the only time this word is used, the cowardly. Who are the cowardly? They're people who back off and give in to the world. There are people who say, this is too much. I can't handle this. This is, I'm out of here. Because if you give in to a lack of faith, it becomes cowardice and it becomes unbelief. And the Lord is saying to us, as he said to John, don't back off. Don't give up. Hold on. Even if you're going through the most difficult circumstances, it is so worth it. It is so worth it to be able to go home. See, in verse 6, he says, it's finished. It's done. You are home. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I want to, to finish by, by coming back to this whole idea of homecoming and seeing your home and, and longing for your home and longing to be with Jesus and longing to, to be away from the pain and the tears and the sorrow and the suffering. Not in some, as I said, not in some kind of ethereal nirvana but in in a real heaven and earth in a real relationship with God you just long to go home to that it's not often in my life I've felt Lord take me home but I was just looking at this this week and I was just thinking this this is just so good it's so good to belong to to be a Christian it's so good to know you've got a home to to go to I hitchhiked around Europe when I was 16 years old. I've told some of you this before. Uh, my, my parents must have been crazy to let me go. Uh, hitchhiked around Europe with 40 quid and a tent, which we lost. Uh, my mother insisted on one thing only when we went. You know, you come home. I mean, it shows how liberated, really, my parents were. I said, Mom, I'm just going to go around Europe for the summer. Okay, son, off you go. And uh, one thing they insisted was have a return ticket from Paris to London. You know, if you can get to London, we know that we can get to you. So, I mean, we, we 
hitchhike in Denmark, Germany, France, and so on. Lasted seven weeks and 40 quid, which was really quite incredible. And then at one point, we were just absolutely starving, trying to get into Switzerland. Hadn't eaten for uh, a day and stood 12 hours standing on the Swiss border and then said, oh, forget this, and thumbed the other way, got to Paris, got on the train. We knew we had the ticket home. And we knew what home was. And we knew there was food at home. And we knew there was shelter at home. And I think that's what this is like for the Christian in this world. If you are a Christian, you've got the ticket home. And sometimes you're going to have a great time away from home. And sometimes you're going to have a really rough time. But you, ultimately you've got to long to go home. Now some of you may have seen this advert already on television. About 2009, the Scottish government wanted to be known as homecoming and trying to persuade a million Scots to return to home and, and so on. It's actually, uh, I think, quite a, a neat idea. But the song that's used in it is Doogie McLean's Caledonia. And Doogie McLean wrote that song when he was in France and he felt homesick for Scotland. And I, I think it's just a great um, song in that way. It sounds a bit corny, but, and I'm not going to sing it, but you'll know the words, let me tell you that I love you, that I think about you all the time. Caledonia is calling and I'm coming home. If I should become a stranger, you know that it would make me more than sad. Caledonia is everything I've ever had. You know, the Christian has that longing for home. You're away from home and you want to go back. There's a German word, and forgive me if you are German, I pronounce this wrong, Sehnsucht, which you can't translate into English really. And all the, the ways I've heard it described are like this, a profound homesickness, but with transcendent overtones, a kind of spiritual longing we are all exiles longing to be home. We are all longing to be welcomed in. In fact, if you understand the Bible, you realize the whole story is the Bible of, is of people being in exile, coming home. The Israelites being in exile, coming home. But the problem for us as humanity is this. If our home is really with God, if we are created to be with God, if we are created as we saw in the first fellowship, that our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, it's all broken. It's all broken. There is no train back. It's all the tunnels blown up. There, there, it, it's, it's all wrecked. How can we be welcomed back in? Keller in his latest book says this, talking about homecoming. In order for this to happen, it would mean a radical change not only in human nature, but in the very fabric of the material world. How can such a thing be accomplished? You see, that's what Revelation's promising us. The very fabric of the material world is changed. Again, let me quote Keller on the same subject. He says, Jesus, unlike the founder of any other major faith, holds out hope for ordinary human life. Our future is not an ethereal, impersonal form of consciousness. We will not float through the air, but rather we will eat, embrace, sing, laugh, and dance in the kingdom of God in degrees of power, glory, and joy that we can't at present imagine. Jesus will make the world our perfect home again. We'll no longer be living east of Eden, always wandering and never arriving. We will come and the Father will meet us and embrace us and we will be brought into the feast. There's a sense in which this world is like a nightmare. One of those nightmares, the dream that you have of you're just about to get to the feast and you walk up the, the, the pathway or whatever and you're dreaming and you get to the feast and your hand reaches out to the feast and it moves. 
It's always gone. The gold is always at the end of the rainbow, but you never get to it. In this world, you never absolutely get to it. But here, what we're being told in Revelation is, there is a home, you will get to it. The Father will meet us and embrace us, and we will be brought into the feast. May God grant that be true of every one of us.